Welcome to our second full episode of the Heathwood Rereadables. This time around, we're looking at Toni Morrison's debut novel, The Bluest Eye, from 1970. Uh, wanted to make a couple quick disclaimers. One, in terms of the content, there is some disturbing content in this novel. Um, it's treated uh, with maturity and, and honesty and realism, but we did want to make that disclaimer out front uh, so that anyone uh, knows what they're getting coming in. Also wanted to make a quick disclaimer about some of the ideas or articles or concepts that we throw out there. A lot of these may actually be taken from other people's criticism and analysis and work. We won't always cite it because it's part of a free-flowing conversation, but we did want to say that we in no way take ownership of the ideas uh, that necessarily we're throwing out. We, we didn't necessarily come up with them, um, but we did want to make that clear. In a paper that you're writing uh, or an essay, you would obviously want to cite your sources. We're not necessarily going to always do that because of the free-flowing form of the conversation. Finally, uh, uh, I wanted to make a quick apology for the end of the episode. Uh, we record these via Google Meet, uh, and I was trying to stop the recording. For some reason, it took a little while, maybe because of the length of our of our meeting. So uh, there's a little bit of dead time there at the end. Uh, just wanted to explain that a little bit. My knowledge of editing tools will hopefully increase, but right now it's not where it needs to be where I can cut that off. So thank you so much for your patience. Thank you for listening. And we hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome. So this is our second full go round with the Heathwood Rereadables. Um, we're tackling Toni Morrison's uh, debut novel, The Bluest Eye, today. Um, I'm Elisha Searcy. I'm an English teacher at Heathwood Hall Episcopal School. Um, I wanted to welcome uh, our guest, a uh, recent Heathwood alum. Uh, uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, hi guys, I'm Pritish Das. I just graduated, which is really weird to say. Um, I'm going to Kenyon College in the fall, studying, I guess, pretty undecided liberal arts direction, kind of like leaning towards philosophy, but who knows. Excellent. And Pritish is one of the, the best readers I think I've ever had the privilege to teach. So this is a, this is a good addition. Um, pass it over. Sure, I'm Dr. Plowden, and I also had the great privilege of teaching Pritish. So um, it is great to have him with us. I am an English teacher at Heathwood as well. So I'll pass it along to Mr. Hain. I'm James Hain, and I teach uh, at Heathwood Hall also. I also had Pritish as a student more than once, thankfully, and as an advisee. Um, so I'm the luckiest one. Uh, the faculty members in the group today. Great. So I'm I'm very happy for our group today. I'm very happy um, that we're tackling a book. Uh, I think all of us sort of got the sense when when we did the Hunger Games that it was an engaging read. That it was a book that had a lot of mythological and sort of cultural under undertones and a lot of lenses to look at. But moving to Toni Morrison, we are moving to a sort of a giant uh, in American literature. Um, I actually came across, um, I'm a big fan of LeVar Burton's uh, podcast that's just called LeVar Burton Reads. 
where he just reads short stories. And he does uh, a Toni Morrison short story. And he talks about her as someone, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, who stood astride the worlds of African-American culture and the literary cognoscenti like a colossus. And I love that one because he's alluding to uh, Antony and Cleopatra by Shakespeare, but two, because I think it really gets to what Morrison um, sort of uh, exemplifies. She was an author who in her own lifetime was often asked, why do you only write about African-American characters? Why do you limit yourself to this world? And her response seemed to always be, I'm not limiting myself at all. I'm expanding the, the way that we view this culture and making it something literary and great and fundamentally human. So I, I read something else that said, um, if Toni Morrison is limited to African-American characters, then Melville was limited to a whaling ship, you know, or Faulkner was limited to the South or Jane Austen was limited to gentry manners, you know, like what all these authors do is they take their individual perspectives and their individual cultures and they make them, they make them great. They make them broad and expansive and human. And I think that's, one of many things that Morrison did. She was a very impressive woman. She actually came pretty late to writing. Um, she was married, uh, had two children, became a professor, and then was the first female editor at Random House um, before she ever got her books published. So The Bluest Eye comes out in 1970. She eventually won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, a Penn Award, and a Nobel Prize for literature. So. Uh, just going by the stats, one of the most decorated authors America has ever produced. And I think in terms of her impact, her and just her power on at the level of the word and the line, she is she is a giant. The word Colossus definitely um, applies. I have never I, I've taught one novel of Morrison's Song of Solomon, but I don't have a lot of experience teaching her. Um, Dr. Plowden, I know this is actually on your reading list for AP students. When we talk about Morrison, what stands out to you? Well, this book is on, I have a list of suggested titles for summer reading. So this book is on that list. And I'm also all but positive that I'm going to add Beloved during the school year this year. But I, I think what stands out to me with Morrison is the sheer power of, of her work. I, I can remember reading Beloved for the first time and finishing the novel. And, and I was actually teaching at Wofford College at the time. I was finishing it. I, I was reading in my office and I, I got very close to the end and I thought, okay, well, maybe I can handle this because I, I found the novel so powerful and so moving. And then I read the last two pages and I just got up from my desk, closed my office door and just wept because I thought, no, really, I can't handle this. This is the most painfully beautiful, haunting. And it, I think it's her power for conveying, especially that the pain of her characters and the way she does it with extraordinary beauty. I mean, yeah. she never backs away from the pain. She, she 
she gives us that and, and those painful circumstances and, a, and at the same time in a language that's just so haunting and beautiful. And for me, uh, I think the, in my opinion, the three greatest American novels are um, Gatsby, Moby Dick and Beloved. Mm. Um, so I, it, it's the sheer power of her work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. Hain, have you, um, you in preparation for this, you, you, you emailed us and were saying just you were awed <laughs> by this novel. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think what sets Toni Morrison apart for me is that um, when I read her, I feel that I'm in the presence of, of someone who understands human nature so deeply that she can teach me about it. That's what yeah. I feel when I read Forster. Mm -hmm. or, or Faulkner or Melville. Um, uh, and uh, not everybody can can do that for me. I mean, I really enjoyed the Hunger Games, but I don't I don't I didn't have that same feeling that I have with right. Toni Morrison. Um, and and also just the lyricism of her prose. I, I, I feel that I'm in the presence of a great artist. Um, she doesn't ever say there's not a cliche in the book unless it comes out of the mouth of a character in quotation marks. <laughs> um, but uh, she she always says things in such a fresh, unexpected way, the way she combines words. She really reminds me of Eudora Welty in that way, maybe sometimes of Virginia Woolf. Um, uh, it, it's, it always makes sense to me. She always says it in the right way, but it's never what I would have expected. It's always <laughs> surprising. Absolutely. Now, Pritish, had you read anything by Morrison before? So I've read four of her novels. Um, <laughs> interesting enough, when I went into the AP exam, I had um, the three novels that Dr. Plowden um, said were the great American novels kind of under my belt. Um, so I read Beloved twice. Mm. I read um, Jazz, Song of Solomon, and now I guess The Bluest Eye twice. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was talking to um, a bookstore owner the other day and he like said to me, I think Invisible Man is the quintessential American novel. And the interesting part of that is it's like whenever I read an immigrant describe America or whenever I read like an African-American describe America, they realize so much of the fundamental kind of like parts of America that um, say white people might take for granted, you know, something that like, um, white people might just like overlook a little bit. And mm -hmm. I would argue that Beloved is the great American novel because just the way that it describes everything, all of the conflict are, is not only a racial issue, but just like a very deeply kind of like humanistic issue. And like that being said, like her content is I think unrivaled by how powerful it is. But her writing, I think like, I think a week ago I read, um. Nabokov's Nin, right? And whenever I read Nabokov, I'm just out astounded by like how an immigrant can write such beautifully American when it's mm -hmm. a second knowledge. He is an absolute master. But and I was just an off for like a good couple of days. But when I picked up the bluest eye, it was like a whole nother level of just understanding mm -hmm. the human language. Like yeah. I think we'll get into this later, but she's very sort of wary and self-conscious about the various techniques that she used especially narrative structures.
but when I was reading this, everything kind of came together very like beautifully, you know? And there's a lot of American authors that it seems very pretentious when they do this kind of stuff. Like they're just kind of like doing it for show as like postmodernist and all that. But when like Morrison does that, very, very apparent that it's like how intentional it is and kind of like how it all weaves together in just like a really beautiful way. So I'm a big fan of Morrison. Yeah, I, you know, in hearing everyone describe her, in baseball, there's the concept of the five-tool player, the player who can hit, hit for power, throw, run, you know. And Morrison is like the five-tool author. Like she has the stylistic bit. She she nails it. She has the conceptual. She's thinking deeply about these things. Um, she's got sort of the structural narrative issues down. And then she has that extra thing that ties it all together and makes it seem of a piece and not just sort of slapped together like a, not to be too harsh, but sort of like academic prose that can seem more functional than aesthetically um, viable. And and she, she was an academic. She was someone who was familiar with that world. And she writes, she writes some great uh, nonfiction work as well. But yeah, her novels do have what you all are describing, just this I don't know. It's 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 American, but it is also outside of American culture as well. Looking at it, and I think, and I think that's a nice segue. So one of the big things in her foreword, she talks about. Um, I I absolutely recommend the foreword to this. I know a lot of students skip that, um, but in the foreword, she talks about what sort of the um, what was her mindset when she wrote this, and she talks about the fact that she had faced contempt in her life. But she, you know, overcoming it was sort of a human experience. She says, when I began writing The Bluest Eye, I was interested in something else, not resistance to the contempt of others, ways to deflect it, but the far more tragic and disabling consequences of accepting rejection as legitimate, as self-evident. And she she talks about the, the humiliation and specifically sort of the racially charged um, uh, hatred and prejudice that can become internalized. And I think that's a, if anything, if the book has a central sort of metaphor or theme or concept, that's it. It's sort of the, not, not the overcoming of abuse, but the internalizing of it. Almost every character, unfortunately, comes to see themselves from the outside and they see themselves from the perspective of the other. That's obviously the tragedy of, of Piccola, but even her parents and those around her, they can't get out of how other people see them. Um, what did you all think of that, uh, how that wove its way through the novel? Are you talking about the, I'm sorry, the idea of this sort of um, letting someone else or actually a dominant culture um, define a concept such as beauty. Yeah, exactly. What, because I do see that as a central issue of, of the book is that, or, or that's how um, I think Morrison really works with this idea that you're talking about, because she goes on later in the foreword to say that um, talking about the book, she says, begun as a bleak narrative of psychological murder. Yeah. And it, it just, um, and it is a psychological murder of Piccola. 
And I, I agree completely with you, um, Dr. Searcy, that this novel very definitely takes um, just a clear view of what happens when we allow a sort of uh, master narrative. Um, I think that word might be, that phrase might be used in the documentary about her. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we allow uh, someone else or a dominant part of our culture to define what is beautiful. And when we do that, then, um, or to allow, you know, uh, when we allow someone to denigrate or because when we allow someone to define what is beautiful then we're also allowing someone to define what is ugly and it, there's no way to win especially when that is also tied up with race there is there's just no way for piccola to yeah. um in her situation with basically an unsupported family and then a father who rapes her, there, yeah. there's no way for her to break free of that um, dominant narrative and to be able to see herself as anything other than ugly because she doesn't have the bluest eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, one way she reminds us there's no way to break free of that dominant narrative is by beginning each chapter with a little run-on sentence from oh, yeah. the Jane books, uh, those books that are populated by blue-eyed characters mm -hmm. who um, uh, are, um, are living the ideal life of white people. Mm -hmm. I think that's always there yeah. in the background. And, and the fact that it's very, it's, and, and I think it's important that our main characters are children. The, the key character yeah. children it does it starts at a young age and the, and the fact that it that motif is the is the children's book is that it gets ingrained very early in in the sort of um and something else dr cloud mentioned the the sort of psychological violence eventually becomes physical violence but it always begins with that sort of mental attitude that does bring up um and i wanted to ask i wanted to ask pritish this because pritish has always been great um, about trying to be the devil's advocate, you know, let's look at it from another perspective, because I think that there's a version of this novel based on that mission that is very, for lack of a better term, like after school, especially, you know, very like, oh, it's, you know, this is sad. What I think elevates this to, to true art is one, she depicts it very, very thoroughly and realistically, but more than that, she doesn't, and she says this in the forward, she doesn't let us demonize the people who do it to her. She doesn't let us see, so the, you know, Pecola's parents, specifically her father, father Charlie, he, he's, he's a monster. I mean, and it's very easy to make him this sort of Simon Legree evil caricature, and yet we get his backstory in such a way I won't. I don't say that you sympathize or empathize with him, but you see where he's coming from in a really powerful way. I wanted to ask Pritish what he thought about her sort of changing or, or viewing the supposed monsters as people too. So one of um, the things that kind of disappoints me a lot about sort of post-colonial thinking and just like in general, um, an attitude towards immigrants that's like very leftist recently 
is there's a sort of forgiveness for heinous acts as saying that, oh, since a Mexican did X, it's okay. Because what it comes off is a sort of, um, if a white person says it, for instance, it's a supremacist attitude, right? It's mm. saying that your race, your kind of people aren't able to have the same moral standards as I have. Mm. And what Morrison does here is genius because she has an unwavering condemnation for the acts that they do. There is absolutely no forgiveness for the sort of depravity in this situation. Because one thing that I really loved about this novel is, is that the way she tried to portray sort of this like inner destruction of the African-American is, she made the African-American the villain in this novel. Because I mean, you obviously have a lot of examples of um, like, for instance, uh, you have like these like white people staring at Charlie when mm -hmm. he's um, having sex and just like looking at him. And you have a lot of instances of white people doing terrible actions. But like a lot of the antagonists in this novel are fellow African-Americans. Yet her genius is that she's not saying that um, African-Americans are more base than the white man. Right. Or are they um, just worse people in general? It's, it's something that I really can't tell you how she did. Um, but she somehow managed to make you, again, it's so hard to describe because it's not sympathy in like a normal sense. Cause like, you know how you like, you always have this like um, character and they do, or like you try to normalize the villain of a story, right? It's a very typical technique, but like, it's kind of not that in the sense that she's still very against this. Raping your kid is never okay. Touching a child is absolutely never okay. But her stories, it, it doesn't leave you with saying that African-Americans are evil. It just leaves you with such a sadness that's just really hard to describe. Well, it, I, I think one thing that she does that you just bring up is she shows how victimizers were themselves victims first. And I think and I think she does so in such a way that it's it's human beings. I mean, she says this in the foreword. It's very easy if we have sort of, you know, monster and victim to sort of... Uh, what does she say? Be to sympathize, but not be moved. Yeah. To, to sort of feel bad, but not necessarily change anything. And I actually oh, wanted to, oh, go ahead, Frank. Well, I was gonna say, I think by introducing us to a character who seems utterly repulsive to us, like Charlie, and right. then we, I think I don't wanna know any more about this guy. And right. then showing us his childhood, where he comes from, what's happened to him, what he's suffered. Um, certainly that doesn't excuse his heinous act later, mm -hmm. but you, you, you see it in context. I mean, you can, it, he didn't become who he is in a vacuum. Right. Um, and, and that, and, and so our attention is called to what's the whole problem here. Uh, uh, um, the, 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 the suffering that these characters, um, have to live with from the day they're born. Um, that's just inescapable. And I wonder if um, if she's hinting to readers who who are from outside this world that the characters that we've seen and thought, "Ooh, I wouldn't want to be in that person's right. place," or that person's behavior is unacceptable. Um, we're we've we've now been introduced to the context mm -hmm. from from which we came. I think that's exactly right. I think she's trying to make if if people's acts are completely incomprehensible, then they become unsolvable. They're sort of just, they're isolated instance that we can't really deal with. 
if on the other hand we understand them and we understand the train that goes to them we still disagree we still can sort of be repulsed by them but we understand where it comes from and where it happens and at that point it becomes it becomes a a, a manage not a manageable problem but it becomes a problem that can be addressed um and i think she she argues in her forward that she she seems to think she failed she seems to think that the the way she structures it people um are still sympathize still sympathize but they don't act they don't they are not changing i time time will tell if that is absolutely true but i think the way she structured is structures it is actually in, uh brilliant and part of the power of the novel um I did want to bring up another thing, and and there are so we talked about sort of seeing yourself from the outside. She brings in the 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 issue of media, um, how you you know so the the children's book at the beginning. Um, but Mr. Hain, you were mentioning as well, uh, Pacola is compared to. I mean, this this comes up with her mother. This comes up with Maureen Peel, the role of film, American cinema in this. Yeah, that uh, she's. Her name is very similar to the name of a, a girl in um, the the Imitation of Life, the movie The Imitation of Life. Uh, I really, I read about that movie, and I can't I, I can't remember everything I read about it. Um, but I think it's an ironic title that yeah. um, here here um, Pauline is imitating life instead of just living it and taking possession of her own beauty. She's trying to 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 grasp at a beauty that's inaccessible to her because it's someone else's beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, um, at the beginning, um, I think it is Piccola, isn't it? Who tells Frida and Maureen that she doesn't like Shirley Temple, who's the other um, little, uh, perfect little precious white child icon. Um, well, Piccola loves Shirley Temple. Claudia hates her. Yeah, it's Claudia who hates Shirley. Claudia, Temple. I'm sorry, Claudia. Yeah. Yeah. Those, I found those bits hilarious. How she, she, she like systematically destroys her white baby dolls. And wants to like <laughs> Shirley Temple glass. In that first, in that, in that um, discussion of when the narrator addresses um, Pauline's obsession with the movies she says that the movies introduced to her the something like the most toxic of all ideas physical beauty that's right it just that's destroyed right. her from this from this um pursuit of physical beauty and the feeling uh, her conviction that she'll mm -hmm. never possess it um every bad emotion arises um uh, it, it, and and it it ultimately it's a really destructive force in her life that pursuit of beauty and that, and that actually follows through in um, Mrs. Breedlove as well, because we're told in her sort of background that she used to love to go to the movies, but when she lost a tooth, it broke yeah. the spell. That's Pauline is Mrs. Breedlove, right? Am I using oh, right. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we see that operate in various mm -hmm. milieus and, and in different characters. Um, oh, go ahead, Dr. Plab. Well, I was just going to say, I love that quotation that Jane, that you all are talking about and had marked it. And it reads, um, along with the idea of romantic love, mm -hmm. she was introduced to another physical beauty, probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought. 
Did we have the same favorite quotation again? <laughs> well, that's one of mine. <laughs> that's one of mine too. I have a long list. So much to what this book, I mean, because I think Morrison really is looking for where is this self-loathing coming from? Yeah. And it, we, it's coming from obviously like a racial kind of self-loathing, but, but she's really examining it in this idea of, you know, who gets to define beauty. So anyway. And, and unfortunately, I mean, these are still issues that we deal with. I mean, there's, yes. there's so much body dysphoria, dys dysmorphic disorder, you know, from, from things like Snapchat, from things like social media, from, um, you know, I, uh, a, a dear sister at church will tell me that she will have people when she doesn't relax her hair, people will come to her at work and tell her that she looks unprofessional like this, you know, 2020, this still happens. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I was talking with my wife a little bit about this. My wife never wears makeup. And she says the people who always comment on it derogatorily are women. It's not men. It's women who will come back, who will come down on her. And I think that that same dynamic of internalizing it and it becomes sort of a self, almost a self-policing um, with the group is, is, is still unfortunately with us. Um, the last thing I want to say before we get into the categories, I, I, I wanted to say, uh, in all of these, we will net we will not exhaust the brilliant quotes, the amazing passages. To, to those who are listening, read the book. That is that is our ultimate goal because it's it's amazing. Um, so we we did want to say that. Um, all right. So uh, unless we had anything else, we can talk more about these. But I wanted to get into the categories if that was all right. Um, so let's talk about the most rereadable passage. I I wanted to preface this by saying, in some ways, the book is very hard to read because of the content and the brutality and sort of the the tragedy of what you're reading. But like King Lear or you know uh, uh, Hamlet or Macbeth or Othello, it has beauty and power that is eminently rereadable. So I know that I'm missing people's favorite passages, but these were the ones I thought of. Um, the first part where I was like, this is this is amazing. I want to keep on reading this was when uh, Pacola uh, goes upstairs to the prostitutes who live above them. Uh, Marie, a.k.a. the Maginot line, uh, <laughs> China and Poland. Um, and it's just this image of freedom in some way. I mean, these are powerful women. These are women who love themselves. And I do, there's a part specifically that I love that sort of showed Morrison had read her 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 liter, literary past. She goes, these were not like prostitutes in those novels that have hearts of gold and will help the men to some <laughs> spiritual awakening. She's clearly like looking at you, Dostoevsky. She's like, no, these were women who hated men, who were going to take them out, who were, you know, and that, just that description and it, the fact that they're the only ones who are kind to Pecola. They are just, they are sweet. They are very understanding. Um, that part was heartbreaking, but I also was like, yeah, this is, this is some killer stuff. Um, the next one, and we kind of referenced this as well, um, the confrontation with Maureen Peel, AKA Meringue Pie. Um, <laughs> and specifically when she starts yelling at them, and calling them, you know, sort of those racially charged names, and they realize that's why she's beautiful and we are not. 
And there's a statement about we were naive enough to love ourselves, to simply inhabit the world and take it in through our senses. We hadn't learned the enemy yet. We hadn't gotten to that point. That's a really powerful scene, I think, that that sort of gets to the heart of what we've been talking about. Um, the other one, and this was a similar one, uh, when Claudia and Frida visit Piccola's mother at, at, the, at the home, there's one, the journey from their part of town to where the white people live. And there's that, they start noticing the buildings are nicer, the streets are cleaner. It's like they're going into a different world, even though it's the same municipality. And then of course, Piccola knocks over the, the, the cobbler and, and Mrs. Breedlove's sort of harshness towards her own daughter and then her kind of condescending comforting of the little white girl. Um, it, again, it's heartbreaking, but she captures it so beautifully. You see what's going to happen. You see all the, the racial and socioeconomic dynamics, but it's, it's just all there in, in a really powerful way. Um, and then to me, probably, uh, I know Dr. Plowden had mentioned that this was kind of a, um, a really, it sets up the later novels in some ways. The final passages, the final, the final pages. Um, I, I'm just going to read part of it real fast. I encourage everyone to read this for themselves. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, but talking about sort of the failure of the society, the failure of um, what they did. So this is the final, the final um, two paragraphs. Um, talking about Piccola, she's finally sort of succumbed and she's lost her mind and she's just a completely broken uh, individual. She says, oh, some of us loved her, the Maginot line, and Charlie loved her, I'm sure he did. He at any rate was the one who loved her enough to touch her, envelop her, give something of himself to her, but his touch was fatal. And the something he gave her filled the matrix of her agony with death. This this is like put this put this on a board somewhere. Love is never any better than the lover. Wicked people love wickedly. Violent people love violently. Weak people love weakly. Stupid people love stupidly. But the love of a free man is never safe. There is no gift for the beloved. The lover alone possesses his gift of love. The loved one is shorn, neutralized, frozen in the glare of the lover's inward eye. And then the last paragraph in the book follows. And now when I see her searching in the garbage for what? The thing we assassinated? I talk about how I did not plant the seeds too deeply, how it was the fault of the earth, the land, of our town. I even think now that the land of the entire country was hostile to marigolds that year. This soil is bad for certain kinds of flowers, certain seeds it will not nurture, certain fruit it will not bear. And when the land kills of its own volition, we acquiesce and say the victim had no right to live. We are wrong, of course, but it doesn't matter. It's too late, at least on the edge of my town, among the garbage and the sunflowers of my town, it's much, much, much too late. You could just drop the mic there. Like if she had never written anything else, like she she belongs in the pantheon for that. She's talking about 10 things at once and she does so with the wisdom of a sage, with the lyricism of a poet and um, just the power of a real artist. I That's my vote for most rereadable passage. Like I could go back and read that once a month 
and and just cry every time. Um, any that I missed? Any passages you all wanted to bring in? Um, one passage that I think it might not be the best passage, but the reason I'm saying it's rereadable is sort of because it's like kind of a poem, like a story inside of a story. Mm -hmm. And um, that's actually one of my favorite parts about this book, sort of that narrative structure that she like doesn't like, I guess. Mm. Um, it's like, I haven't read him in a while, but it sort of reminds me of like sort of a Faulkner style where mm. they'll like, have this central sort of like narrative, but they'll like incorporate different characters and different perspectives like in the beginning and then they'll continue to sort of weave them in. Um, and my favorite instance of this was um, Geraldine and Junior. Mm. Because it, I think like when, if you read that entire chapter, which I guess isn't really a passage, um, like you can just gain a lot from reading it alone. Yeah. And um, one of the things that it demonstrates a lot and one of the most important sort of themes of the book is um, I think what Malcolm X called the um, house and word sort of um, mm. complex where basically like you would have the um, people working in the field and like everybody's oppressed, right? But since they're working in the house, they feel this sort of um, patronizing attitude towards um, the people working in the field. And being an immigrant or a second wave immigrant, I can see this a lot through a lot of immigrants, right? Because mm -hmm. like sort of like when you make it through that hurdle of being an immigrant and when you, if you're successful, you sort of have this condescending view towards others because you kind of see them as why are they not in my position because they're worse than me whether that's conscious mm -hmm. or unconscious is another question mm -hmm. um like that kind of like dynamic makes you see sort of this like junior character because geraldine is caught up in it right but the fascinating thing about junior is is that he never really learned this directly you know he's just like kind of feeding off of hints because he really wants to hang out with the um, African-American children, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because, like, he sees that sort of culture, that vibrancy, and he's really kind of jealous because when he's in, like, the top of the swings and he's beating everybody down, he's really not having fun, you know? Right. He's just like, doing it for a sort of power control. But, like, at the end of the day, it's very sort of empty enjoyment. However, when he, like, sees the African-American children playing, he sees them genuinely like this sort of kinship in this brotherhood. And then yeah. you kind of see this sort of, another really big theme in the movie is um, this sort of like lovelessness in the sense that people don't know how to translate their love. Yeah. You know, like people don't know how to convey it. And when Junior interacts with Bacola, I feel like it's a sort of similar dynamic when he really wants to actually be friends with her. But like his sense of love is so grossly distorted that it yeah. turns into abuse and it turns into a disgusting mess. And I just think it conveys so many sort of central themes in the book in that one very unique chapter, which mm -hmm. is sort of, I would argue sort of individual from everything else that happens because you can like take it out and the story would remain the same. However, the book would not remain the same because it's such an important chapter to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, you mentioned sort of the variety of the narrative you know, there's the first person narrative of Claudia. There's the um, there's the intermittent, like sort of the third person omniscient depiction of Pauline. But then she herself sort of comes in first person, almost like she's being interviewed. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, you're right. The variety there. It's it's what some people it, it's certain postmodern techniques, but it's used so beautifully and seamlessly that it actually accomplishes something. And I think that's that's a good point. Um, 
Dr. Platten, what, what did you think of as your favorite passage or any that I missed in there? Um, well, I, I realized that I'm supposed to add something here <laughs> or something different, but may I just go back to the last pages for just a moment because I, it, um, I do see in these last pages the um, prefiguration of what we're going to see at the end of Beloved that just for me, it just takes my breath away every time I read it. And this I, I see, and this is her first novel. And it, it's just amazing to me that in her first novel, she's able to accomplish the bringing together of so many different ideas and just the um, importance of them. But I wanted to mention, just to add just a couple of things. And that is that like when she, first of all, there's the splintering of the self yeah. with um, Piccola talking to this sort of alternate identity right before we have those amazing final paragraphs and the splintering of the self where she's talking back and forth to this sort of alternate identity is so um, painful for me because Piccola never really had a self. Yeah. And um, the there the splintering of what little um, I guess integrity she had or, or a self that she had is um, I think particularly effective. But I wanted to point out just two things in which I can't help being a student of American literature about these final paragraphs. And uh, one of them, because I agree with everything that you said, Dr. Searcy, and I'll just add these two things. Um, it Morrison writes, um, the damage was done. And she's talking about Piccola. She says she spent her days, her tendril sap green days, walking up and down, up and down, her head jerking to the beat of a drummer so distant, only she could hear. Mm. And I read that and I thought, whether intentional or not, um, it reminded me so much of the passage from Walden in which Thoreau writes, um, if a man doesn't keep pace with his companions, then perhaps it is because he hears um, a different drummer, let him step to the music, um, which he hears however measured or far away, something like that. And, and so I just want to point that out. Okay, so whether it's intentional or not, as a reader, a student of American literature, I read that and I think, oh my gosh, this is so powerful because Piccola never had the opportunity that Henry David Thoreau had to yeah. live an existence of his choice. Piccola lived a life in which she was at the mercy of all of these destructive forces. And so um, when I read it, I, I, I think about how um, painfully that points out the um, differences, I think, of opportunity in different lives in, in America. Um, but she also mentions, she compares Piccola to a bird and who cannot learn to fly. 
Um, flight is an important image in Morrison's work. Milkman at the end of Song of Solomon yeah. learns to fly. But I also think back to Paul Lawrence Dunbar and the Sympathy, and I know why the caged bird sings, and then Maya Angelou's autobiography, but Piccola obviously not able to do that. And I think that has a lot to do with her being a child and her vulnerability. But finally, I wanted to say that she points out that Piccola and her mother live on the edge of my town among the garbage and the sunflowers of my town. And it's much, much, much too late. And that is when you close the book and just cry. Yeah. And I, I wanted to also just as a student of American literature and British probably knows what I'm about to say, but you know, we have the Scarlet Letter in which we have Hester Prynne who is marginalized and lives on the edge of town. And you think about, well, what's the difference, obviously, between Hester Prynne and Piccola? Well, uh, there's the obvious difference in that even though Hester is marginalized and is stigmatized, um, Hawthorne devotes quite a bit of time to delineating her beauty and extolling how beautiful and vibrant she is in the first pages of the novel. And even though she doesn't fit into the Puritan society, she's not somebody really viewed as um, what they say in this novel, what outdoors, you know, if you're put outdoors, yeah. That is final, that is permanent. So I, I think even that, that just I ha can't help but look at it as a student of American literature and that um, those two things remind me of the other two novels or what work. And even Walden, if you recall, was um, structured according to seasons. Mm -hmm. um, yes in the same way that this book is. I'm not trying to imply any sort of debt to, to Henry David Thoreau, but for somebody who's read it and I come to this and I realize how Thoreau had this privilege and opportunity mm -hmm. that when I look at Piccola, it just makes it all the clearer to me what she never had. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no, no, that's, no, that's exactly right. Wanted to add those things to what you were, were saying. Just um, she's not marginalized. She is um, outdoor, put, she's outdoors, not like put out. She's going back to the beginning of the novel. She just. Yeah, and, and that does remind me again of the foreword. Morrison said she tried to construct a character who had no support no advantages, no, whether it be family, community, uh, physically, personally. Piccola wasn't smart enough or independent enough or didn't have that. Like you feel like Claudia and Frida, they've got each other and they also have a certain tenacity. Like they're willing to fight. Right. And they've also got parents who provide something for them, who love them, who, who really care for them. Um, Poor Piccola is just she 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 drew the shortest straw in like every single category, and and I think that definitely comes through in in that lack of lack of opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Hain, what what did you think? I, I know I missed some some passages. What were you thinking uh, in terms yeah. of the reader? <laughs> there's a lot I can read. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to restrain myself. Um, one that just really took me was uh, the the scene in which Aunt Jimmy, who raised Charlie, mm -hmm. 
is dying um, or she's very ill. We don't know if she's dying yet. Uh, and her friends arrive to care for her. And, and I love this passage for so many reasons. One, it, it shows us a group of women who have all been victimized in some way, but they are not victims. Mm -hmm. uh, they're survivors who have finally achieved their freedom. Um, I, I love the way she, Morrison is able to, to deal with abstractions like beautiness and ugliness, um, uh, at what it means to be a victim, what it means to be a survivor, what it means to recreate yourself and your own image. Um, she can lead us into, a, um, there's a universality in, in, the, in the way she um, takes those things on, um, but it's, it's grounded in this really gritty, concrete, vivid language. I mean, uh, um, great sensory detail. And this is the way this passage begins. That evening, the women brought bowls of pot liquor from black-eyed peas, from mustards, from cabbage, from kale, from collards, from turnips, from beets, from green beans, even the juice from a boiling hog jowl. Um, and, and so right away, I mean, like I'm in the room, you know, it's, it's so real already. I mean, then we read uh, a little further down, the three women sat talking about various miseries they had had, their cure or abatement, what had helped. Over and over again, they returned to Aunt Jimmy's condition, repeating its cause, what could have been done to prevent the misery from taking hold, and Madeir's infallibility. The, the Madeir is the, the healer woman. Right. Their voices blended into a threnody of nostalgia about pain. <laughs> Rising and falling, complex in harmony, uncertain in pitch, but constant in the recitative of pain. They hugged their memories and il of illnesses to their bosoms. They licked their lips and clucked their tongues in fond remembrance of pains they had endured. Childbirth, rheumatism, croup, sprains, backaches, piles, all of the bruises they had collected from moving about the earth, harvesting, cleaning, hoisting, pitching, stooping, kneeling, picking, always with young ones underfoot. By, by that point, I feel like, wow, I feel like, I, I mean, this calls to mind Carl Sandburg. Oh, yeah. Chicago, hog butcher to the, book butcher, butcher to the world, stacker of uh, wheat, uh, mm -hmm. builder of railroads. Um, and I, I feel like there's Walt Whitman in it and Langston Hughes. Um, I think of my soul has grown deep like the rivers. I, I feel like, yes, as she said in the foreword, she doesn't want it to, to try to define the experience of every African-American or every person. Um, um, but she wants to focus on a few characters. But by bringing these characters in, I think she is uh, giving us a window into the experience of a whole people. Um, a little farther down, she writes, um, uh, 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 where is it? Um, then they had grown. She talks about the, how the, how they had, um, been young once. And then these women had grown up. Then they had grown edging into life from the back door, becoming everybody in the world was in a position to give them orders. White women said, do this. White children said, give me that. White men said, come here. Black men said, lay down. The only people they need not take orders from were black children and each other. 
<laughs> they took all of that and recreated it in their own image. They ran the houses of white people and knew it. When white men beat their men, they cleaned up the blood and went home to receive abuse from the victim. They beat their children with one hand and stole for them with the other. The hands that fell trees also cut umbilical cords. The hands that wrung the necks of chickens and butchered hogs also nudged African violets into bloom. The arms that loaded sheaves, bales, and sacks rocked babies to sleep. They patted biscuits into flaky ovals of innocence and shrouded the dead. Um, uh, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. She, ends, she ends all this by saying, they were old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, and at last, free. And the lives of these old black women were synthesized in their eyes, a puree of tragedy and humor, wickedness and serenity, truth and fantasy. I mean, they're, they're okay, she's, it, uh, I can't remember your baseball term, but she's hitting with all five. <laughs> I mean, she's hitting, she's hitting home runs. She's getting the double through the gap you need there. She's bunting the runner over. I like, mean, there's the the, the the lyricism, the yeah. the just the, those what a, just powerful combinations of words. Um, uh, there's the 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 hint at the universality of this situation, at least among a certain community. Um, and I felt it was a teaching moment for me. I mean, I, it just made me see things in a way that I hadn't seen them before. I felt like, wow, look at the, the fabric of pain that this, that this, um, these women have created themselves out of. Um, it also suggests to me, there's an, another possible outcome for, for someone who has suffered, who has been victimized, not to suggest yeah. that uh, Piccola's uh, outcome is her fault. Um, but I think she, it, by adding these characters in, she doesn't diminish the story. She's suggesting, she's, she shows us that she's not suggesting that there's only one outcome for mm -hmm. anyone who's, who's lived these things. Um, there's great strength in these characters too. Um, and, and it also makes me think, so why didn't Jolly drink some of this in and, and um, overcome a little bit, uh, evolve a, a bit? Well, he, and it's interesting that you, you bring up, because one of those last phrases, they were free. And that yes. term is applied to Jolly, but that's what makes him so dangerous. Yeah. 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 He, he imbibes the freedom. I mean, and one th just as a cultural side note, this is in the south this is before the great migration up and a lot of people have pointed out like more you know so this this novel is set primarily in lorraine ohio which is uh morrison's hometown and there is as as a child of the midwest there is a coldness and an isolation and a certain like those women are free to express themselves pain is not a a uh, stigma expressing that pain actually becomes a way of mastering. It's sort of like what W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the blues that was that the jagged fingering of the wound actually helps you own the pain. In some ways, moving up north, while there may be supposed economic opportunity, it separates you from one of the things that 
they had in that community, in that sense of communal pain, in that sense of expression, and you see sort of the isolation come through. An interesting counterpoint to that, the women talking about Aunt Jemmy uh, and how she's sick, is when uh, Claudia and Frida find out that Cola is pregnant. They're hearing women, and they all, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a sort of contemplation of their own thought. It's just an attacking thing. And in fact, it, she manages to work in a little comedy. The old woman was killed by a piece of peach cobbler. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> when you least expect it. Exactly. Exactly. Like people say, you know, she didn't mean to kill her, but it had to be. That's <laughs> and I mean, another, you mentioned Madeer. Madeer is the, is the healer who seems to have like some real power some yes. ability and knowledge. And we contrast that with Soped Church, who is a charlatan. Worse yes. than that, I mean, he's a child molesting charlatan. Like, I'm not, you know, like he basically comes and fools people. And, you know, like, so there's sort of, he's the fake version of the real deal that Madeer uh, exemplified. Um, so my unspoken challenge was, to, I was gonna see how long it took anybody to mention Soped Church. Um, he's, he is one of my nits to pick a little bit. Yeah, um, It may take me a second reading of the book to decide that he's really an important um, character. No, I, yeah, I'm with you a little bit. <laughs> and we can talk about, I mean, so I think what we've all pointed out is we all were, we all managed to find a passage that is incredible in its artistry, incredible in the themes it brings out. And she has she has that thing where she can talk about something simple like the cures for an illness, and it ends up sounding like like a spell or something from the book of Revelation. Or I mean it's it's just it talks about ten things at once. She talks about planting marigolds and she's just described the entire American condition. <laughs> Um, and I, I mean, so my vote is for the end, but if anybody votes for other passages, you can't gainsay any of them. They're just unassailable. They are, they are, I mean, staggeringly good. And as Dr. Plowden mentioned, for her first novel, <laughs> good lord. That's like your rookie year going out and hitting 500 with like 70 home runs. It's just nuts. Sorry for the baseball metaphors. We're getting a baseball <laughs> <laughs> On the point of the um, first novel, it's something that I see a lot in music. I don't really see a lot in literature and film, but like there's always this certain raw factor that you see in a lot of like, you know, debut um, albums, right? Like you have Nas's Illmatic, uh, Kanye's Graduation, both hip hop. I don't know why. I thought he was late registration was his first one. No, no, no. Because like he, he drops out of college and then he registers late. Oh, so actually, you're right. College Dropout is his first one. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, um, one thing that, like, I really noticed about this is there's that very raw sort of force behind this. So, like, you don't have years of, like, you know, because um, I was, like, listening to this interview, and she was like, oh, yeah, I didn't have that sort of literary criticism that I kind of put into my other books. And while that definitely has its benefits, having a bunch of, you know, like, academics saying uh, blah, 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 you need to do this right, you need to do that right, that does, like, it also sort of takes away sort of these really integral important factors of a novel. Yeah. Um, 
But one thing I really notice about this is while there is that raw force, it is insanely polished for a first oh, novel. Yeah. Yes. Like, structure in the organization is absolutely genius and brilliant, which mm -hmm. you really just don't see without that sort of experience of having written a bunch of novels. Yes. Well, and I think I think we'll talk about this, but her age when this is published is both like shocking, but I think it's also very instructive. There's a life that has gone into her prep, you know, her preparation for this novel. And I think that shows in exactly what you're saying, the richness, the depth, and the none of it is wasted. None of it is wasted. It's all super tight. Um, so yeah, I you could pick out any random page and probably be a, a rereadable passage. <laughs> um, which I think leads us to what's age the best. The prose is just amazing. Like <laughs> The, the the writing we've already read yes. examples you could take the, there are a few lines in there um it, it's also one of my favorite quotes describing mrs breedlove's voice she says she had a voice like an earache and i'm like yes like that description of you know like it's that it's partially synesthetic and it's just those little toss-off lines mr hayne mentioned it there's not a cliche in the whole thing um, just the, it, it's so well written from beginning to end. Uh, just amazing. I was going to say, I know that the character doesn't age well, but I have to say the name Soaphead Church is so memorable. <laughs> like, it fits it perfectly. He's such a creepy, like scuzzy guy. Um, and he's so fake, like Soaphead Church works. Even the family name Breedlove. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's right and wrong in so many ways. Oh, yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, so I thought those names had really aged well. We talked already about the structure of the narrative. Like we know what happens from the very beginning. We know that right. Paula's father is going to impregnate her. We know she's lost from the beginning, and yet the going back and forth um, lends it. I mean, it, not that I'd forgotten. But when we got back to it, even though I knew what was going to happen, it was still a revelation. It was still, you know, that that scene was still traumatic. And then Dr. Plowden mentioned the structure of the seasons. It It's reading it is not like reading a normal chapter book. It seems like you're reading almost a rite or a, almost an incantation. Like it's, it's, it's synchronized to the year in a way that I think makes it very powerful. Um, that structure really works. Um, I think, I mean, this is interesting, but the fact that our primary characters are children uh, has aged very, very well. We talked last time in the Hunger Games about sort of the YA milieu and how that how that sort of operates. It, it, there's, a, there's a comedy bit that I like where the comedian says, uh, one group that has really made a lot of strides since he was a kid was children. Like when he was a kid, nobody listened to kids. You know, if, if, if a homeless man brought him up to his mother and said, your son hit me, the mother would say, why did you hit this homeless man? You know, it wouldn't be like, does anyone want to know why the homeless man? <laughs> you know, it's just children were ignored. Um, and I think the fact that she makes that this the central point of her novel works very well. Um, it's 
as a person with a young daughter, it's heartbreaking and I want to sort of put her in a bubble and <laughs> not let her go anywhere. But I think that 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 narrative focus has aged incredibly well. Um, and then I think we already talked about it, but just the, the role that media depictions play in the formation of identity and the view of yourself and the way that um, the way that any group, uh, whether it be marginalized or not, I mean, that that is still it, that is more true today than it was back then. Um, but any, any um, yeah, British. So very quickly on the note of um, children. I guess this isn't really like aging well as it is much as like kind of a contemporary sort of reference. Um, in like the, I think 2017 film Moonlight, one of mm. the most brilliant aspects of it, I'm pretty sure Barry Jenkins was a big fan of Morrison. He was, um, yeah, he loved Baldwin, so he made a movie about that. But anyways, in um, Moonlight, it's divided into three chapters, which is basically like childhood, um, sort of teenager, and then like um, sort of the, uh, adult stage so the childhood part it's very sort of similar to Pacola's situation in the sense that they're very helpless mm -hmm. except child in moonlight gets a lot of love which kind of separates her from Pacola, who is just completely devoid of anything except maybe Frida and claudia arguably mm -hmm. um but one thing that i really liked about moonlight was just how sort of innocently cruel the children were because yeah. at least with adults I mean, you can look at the children's actions on a very superficial level and be like, they're so mean, but th their cruelty is like, it's innocent in the sense that when you're cruel to an adult, it's very sort of, um, sort of like secondhand and subversive, right? Like, it, it, you can like say like one kind of word, like say, um, I wasn't feeling like that at the party. And then like, you know, it kind of like spuns this sort of like web of like, oh, you didn't enjoy my party, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, it creates that whole situation. But with a kid, you know, they're just playing and there's not really that much maliciousness behind it because like, you know, they're sort of learning. So that's one part that I really liked about yeah. just how children sort of interacted. Um, I think also just to add to what Pradesh said, but what Dr. Searcy has said as well, I think Morrison obviously elevates the children by giving the only character she gives the first person point of view to is Claudia. Yeah. That all other characters we see through third person point of view, if I think I'm remembering that correctly, Claudia is the only character who speaks for, who is allowed first person character. I mean, first person point of view. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that also plays into the um, importance or the emphasis on children. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth noting that that um, uh, when Prentish mentioned the, the innocent cruelty of children, um, when they're taunting Piccola, calling her Blackie Mose, Blackie Mose, um, mm -hmm. the, the I think we have to consider that in the context of the of the um, uh, the cultural insensitivity to the to the beauty of this community. That, that yeah. remember that at the top of the chapter is the crunched together line from the Dick and Jane book, where all the cute little white children have blue eyes, um, mm -hmm. and and this racial self loathing that um, that uh, Morrison mentions in her forward or afterward. Um, is present there. I mean, the yeah. children are hating themselves for, for being black um, right. and going after the blackest one of the group. 
Yeah, and it's funny because that's Maureen Peel ends up edit, uh, echoing that at them whenever right after that she starts yelling that at them, and of course Frida and Claudia have their you know dog toothed meringue <laughs> like they 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 throw they have their best ammunition. But you're exactly right that the children the children are already there. They've already internalized that. Um, There's so, I think there's a, the main parts of this novel have aged so well, and part of that is just the writing. Like, even if certain sort of details don't quite land in the same way, um, the the writing is so good, it carries you through, you know, like. Well, this is a, a bit of a stretch, but bear with me. But I think in, in light of current events, um, the the uh, Black Lives Matter movement really gaining strength and and drawing in, um, a, a, I guess, broadening its reach um, as a result of so many of the awful things that have happened later, acts of violence against Black people. Mm -hmm. um, I think Morrison's technique of introducing us to a character who's not so appealing, for example, Charlie, and then um, you know, I almost, this is another stretch, but I really thought of Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Um, mm. we think he's just loathsome at first and then we find out, well, he's, he's, he's not the warmest, fuzziest guy in the world, but I mean, he did, he, he does have reasons, um, uh, for his behavior. Um, he, uh, so I don't want to, I'm not suggesting that Charlie had any good reason to do what he did to Piccola. Um, but I do think by by um, introducing us to a character who's not so appealing and then establishing the context out of which that character emerged, um, she is inviting a broader audience to consider an experience that is not ours, that has not been ours. Um, and to be a little more understanding and compassionate. That's yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I mean in that age well. In I that moment for that. Yeah. But but I think you're right in that that is that that to me is one of the things that makes literature so important. And she does it so powerfully and so beautifully. I mean, we can read her as a Midwestern novelist. We can read her as an American novelist. We can read her as a African-American novelist. We can read her as a female novelist. But ultimately, what she does is she she gives every perspective so convincingly and so thoroughly and so honestly that she's just an artist. She's a novelist. She's incredible. She even makes me think, um, yeah, if I were Ms. Breedlove, I would enjoy the fight, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, she, she like diagrams that like you know John Madden for an NFL game. All right, she goes left, and then she like that, it's it's. I was almost laughing until, but we'd already seen sort of the brutal ending. At which, since we're talking about the breed loves, let's maybe go to what's aged the worst. And this is not necessarily her fault. This please do not take these as as uh, condemnations or criticisms of her casual child molestation uh, it's it's rough i mean you you brought up mr hamlet so the the part with charlie and pecola is sort of central to the narrative and i think that that's that's a very it's unfortunate but it, it's very central to what she's trying to get at the fact that mr henry is also a pedophile and the fact that soaped church is also 
like the, at some point, at some point, I mean, and, and I know that in some ways you mentioned in that passage you read, Mr. Hain, black men can get away. I mean, who can everybody abuse? Children. Like they are the most vulnerable. They are the most. So in that sense, it, it makes it, I understand it. But by the fifth time a little girl is being molested, I'm just like, okay, I, I need, I need some, I need to go take a break. I that it, makes, it, it recalls um, Oprah Winfrey as Sophia's uh, line in The Color Purple: "A girl child ain't safe in a family of men." That's yeah. I mean, and I know that it. I know that there was that element of it, but God Almighty. Um, anyway. Um, I would say that every almost every male character has aged badly. No one's really like, yeah. even though even though we can understand Charlie a little better, you know, he's he's still not winning Father of the Year awards. Um, this is just a, a, a sort of a historical thing that migration north, you know, from the southern sort of sharecropping oppression up to the sort of industrial oppression. As someone who grew up in the Midwest, I mean, this was very much, oh, racism, that's a Southern thing. No, like that, you know, sort of the the brutal awakening. You know, I think Dr. King said when he was campaigning for fair housing in Chicago, he said, man, people here could teach people in the South some tricks. Like, it, it's, it's just as bad. Um, and uh, the recent events, I think, have sort of shown that that myth that certain parts of the country have gotten over this. No, it's it's still very much a part of the society. The final thing I think that's aged badly, and again, this is not a criticism of her, I think she gets wrong how successful she is in writing it. In her foreword, she says, um, she she just says, I failed. It, it, it I've not, I've tried not to dehumanize people, but I know I failed because hasn't really people are still sympathetic but unmoved and i think that may have been true at the time but i think as time has gone on her her structure her narrative power and the way that she just crafted this whole novel it works well like i would not change it i, I think well, i wondered when i read that was she thinking that um as she began the project she had Piccola and her suffering, uh, uh, her the way her own understanding of beauty and ugliness had damaged her. Um, did she want that to be more central to the story? And she found herself being having to depart from Piccola to to fill yeah. in the background. And I wonder if she felt like she was just up against a challenge that was n nearly impossible. I mean, I think it's a brilliant book. Um, I did. I did appreciate her humility in that, and then I thought, "Well, my God, what if what if she had achieved what she yeah. set out to achieve? That'd be it really." Sort of, it sort of reminds me. Um, uh, Bloom has this thing where he's talking about T.S. Eliot's take on Hamlet. T.S. Eliot famously called Hamlet an artistic failure, and Harold Bloom says, "My God, if that's a failure, I would want to see a triumph." You know what? <laughs> succeeds if Hamlet fails. And you're exactly right. I feel like if, if even if this doesn't satisfy the author, dang, if it doesn't get pretty, I mean, I, I don't know how much closer you're going to get on this. Project. And I wonder if this is her version of, of, of uh, Twain's disclaimer at the beginning of Huckleberry Finn. I mean, she's so used to being categorized as a black writer, defining mm. the black experience. Um, I, I think, uh, 
it might not go well for her. Uh, people either might assume she's arrogant or, or yeah. she's defining the experience in a way that wasn't my experience. If she doesn't make clear to us that she ha has not been able um, to do this as successfully as she would have liked. Fair. That's fair. And I, I think, you know, going back to that LeVar Burton quote, I think she's, you're right. She's very conscious of striding two worlds, the academic literary sort of in-depth reading versus, I mean, I don't think she was just writing for an academic audience. I think she was writing for, I mean, as, a, as an editor at Random House, she knew like, you got to sell, <laughs> you got to get stuff out there. Um, and I think she was very conscious of that. So that's, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, this part, I, I, I've already mentioned one of these, but there are so many awesome quotes. Um, I, I wanted to bring up a couple. I already mentioned her voice was like an earache in the brain, um, which is just amazing. Um, uh, th this, this one just struck me as, as gorgeously written. Thrown in this way into the binding conviction that only a miracle could relieve her. She would never know her, the bluest eye beauty. She would see only what there was to see, the eyes of other people. And I think that captures sort of what we talked about, the loss of identity and loss, the inability to see yourself. Um, this was this going back to the insults and the casual uh, innocent cruelty of children. They had extemporized a verse made up of two insults about matters over which the victim had no control. The color of her skin and speculations on the sleeping habits of an adult, wildly fitting in its incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> that one was splendid. Yeah. That just the way of describing, like, it's a perfect academic explanation for two kids <laughs> yelling at anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, you guys had already mentioned this, along with the idea of romantic love. She was introduced to another physical beauty. Um, uh, th this talking about little uh, Soaphead before he's Soaphead. Um, little Elihu learned everything he needed to know well, particularly the fine art of self-deception. Uh, <laughs> I thought was the, good, good for the sort of charlatan character. And then um, this is at the end when... Frida and Claudia hear about Piccola's predicament. We looked for eyes creased with concern, but saw only veils. And I think that sort of exemplifies the difference between the community that Charlie experienced as a young man, a young boy down south, um, with the sort of closed offness that they have up in Lorraine. The instead of concern and shared pain, what you have is judgmental veils, and, and you have separations between people. Um, I know I didn't exhaust them. There are 50, you could just read the whole book. Any any other quotes that really stood out to you all? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to try to restrain myself. Uh, one of these, one of them is um, is after the white man surprised Charlie when he is um, getting yes. intimate with um, uh, Darlene, and his response is to hate Darlene. Which was just at yeah. first that was puzzling to me. I, I think it was meant to be puzzling, and then there comes the explanation. Um, it's sullen, irritable. He cultivated his hatred of Darlene. Never did he once consider directing his hatred toward the hunters. Such an emotion would have destroyed him. They were big, white, armed men. He was small, black, and helpless. 
His subconscious knew what his unconscious mind did not guess, that hating them would have consumed him, burned him up like a piece of soft coal, leaving only flakes of ash and a question mark in the smoke. That for me was just powerful and instructive. And I felt um, opened my eyes to an experience I've never had and that I wouldn't have imagined without her help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and another one that I love, I think she is so good at, a, at recreating um, the quirks and, and uh, of other people um, or right now just painting them for us. Um, this is early in the book and she's describing, I think the conversation between uh, um, uh, uh, Pecola's mother I can't remember her name. Claudia's mother, Claudia and Frida's mother. Um, when she's talking to her friends about Mr. Henry and everything mm -hmm. else, she says their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound, curtsies, shimmies, and retires. Another sound enters, but is upstaged by still another. The two circle, the two circle each other and stop. Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals. Other times they take strident leaps and all of it is punctuated with warm pulsed laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. I think she uh, reminds me of Eudora Welty in that mm. way. I think Eudora Welty could, could do that. Yeah, I mean, she get she does, she does. She shows you, but then she also tells you in such a way that it feels like showing you. And yeah. Just, and and I think could I have could I have done that? Could I have described their conversation in that way? I mean, how long did she have to think about that to 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 put that paragraph together? What she does, and this goes back to something you said earlier, she never has a cliche. What she does is she takes the cliche and maximizes it and pushes it and makes it into something new and real. That 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 really exemplifies why why it was a cliche in the first place. You know, oh, a conversation is a dance, right? Whatever. She made it a dance, and she goes into all yes. the yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, she's brilliant at that. I had a couple of additional favorite quotations too. Oh yeah. Um, but I do love that love is never better than the lover that comes yeah. at the end. But also I wanted to mention the one at it's in the very beginning, right after the first uh, Dick and Jane storybook <clears throat> um, excerpt. But um, Claudia says, uh, it never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. And she's talking about why the marigolds didn't bloom. But I just wanted to mention that one because it brought to mind the idea uh, for me of like um, Greek tragedy in, in which um, the land is diseased or blighted. There seems to be a blight on marigolds for that year. And right. it brought to mind to me the idea of tragedy in, in, in which well, I'm thinking of Oedipus, but I'm also thinking of Hamlet in which something rotten in the state of Denmark, but it seems to be kind of a poisoned or rotten kingdom, but that the um, country, the land in which they live is one in which the marigolds are not allowed to bloom. So, and 
the metaphor there. So I, I did love that one as well. But also on page 32, when um, Piccola says, I, I believe it's just after she has started her period. And one of the things we haven't mentioned that I just thought about is that this is a coming of age novel for Claudia and Frida and for Piccola, who's coming of age is absolutely disastrous. But of course, she's just started her period, which means that she can now um, have children, which of course is um, terrible for her. But um, she she says, um, how uh, this is Piccola, she says, how do you do that? I mean, how do you get somebody to love you? Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I mean, it's not a quotation you want to read and reread, but she she never knows that. And, and, and she never um, receives, obviously, um, that kind of, of love. So I, I think I wanted to add just those two. Absolutely. Um, yeah, go on ahead. Sort of, um, I'm not going to call it a theme, but like, that sort of like um, action, I guess. Um, there was like this one of the, I guess, I considered it funny in a very sort of disgusting sort of way, but like in the scene where um, Frida <laughs> gets her period for the first time. Um, was it Frida or Percola? I think it was Frida. Oh, Percola. Percola, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was just like this one line that I kind of read in Mr. Haynes' voice. <laughs> and it was the in the world. It was like she's it's not menstruating, it's ministratin. Mm-hmm. And I just like read it in his voice and I was just I gave a huge um laugh. And like that whole scene is just really brilliant mm-hmm. and like just how it's paced because like the whole story kind of unfolds. It's re- it's a really entertaining bit. You could maybe consider it comedic relief even though like the fact that like um the whole like undertones of the scene aren't really funny at all. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the scene itself and like seeing these like young, innocent girls trying to like discover themselves. I just found really, really beautiful. And it is uh, a little bit like dying from peach pie. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the um, other of my favorite quotes was in page 23. This is again in the really beginning. And we've already talked a lot about this section. But um, there's this one sentence after she um, kind of talks about her hatred for the white dolls because of, you know, the preconceived (laughs) notions of beauty being affiliated with whiteness. She says that a really clever line, I learned much later to worship her, just as I learned to delight in cleansliness, knowing even as I learned that the change was adjustment without improvement. So it's, it's like, it's a really sad theme in the sense that they can't defeat this, um, I guess, racism and this prejudice, right? So the only thing that they can do without destroying themselves is just internalize it and accept it as like the status quo. Because like, you know, it's like one of those things that a lot of their sort of, um, a lot of their foundation is built upon racist ideals. And if they kind of like, this is very like Faulkner sort of attitude, you know, like, if you question and destroy all of your foundation, then what are you left with? You simply kind of like implode and, you know, Quentin kills himself. Um, but like, it just leads to destruction. So the only real alter- alternative they can do is just sort of internalize it. And it's just a really depressing sort of sentiment. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of these lines are both humorous and beautifully written, but also ultimately tragic. And I think that that sort of gets to the heart of it. Um, so I was going to, uh, in terms of non best non main character, there's not there's not very many that I would nominate. Uh, no way in heck I'm giving Charlie this award. Um, really, to me, there are only really two. Uh, I'm willing to entertain other ideas, but the Maginot line. She, she she only shows up like two or three times, but she's awesome. She like throws the bottle at him, and she doesn't threw the bottle. Yes, that's when I. Yeah. And and the fact that she's called the Maginot line is just like, you know. Um, but she, you know, she talks about the man she used to have and how she uses him now. So she she'd be my get my pick that or Maureen Peel. Um, she only shows up really once, but she kind of, she exemplifies all these things. She's the human embodiment of internalized prejudice. Like she is the perfect, you know, the, the description of she doesn't have jelly sandwiches. She's got egg salad and cupcakes and apples. <laughs> she, she bought and enjoyed white milk. She was a mystery. Like, like these, just these little details. I'm going for the Maginot line, but uh, I'll let you guys sort of think if you have any other nominees for the best non-main character. I did think that um, Claudia and Frida's mother was a great oh, yeah. non-main character. I really loved her tirades while she was yes. in the <laughs> talking about how Bring could it all the milk person all that milk. <laughs> likes the Shirley Temple cup, you know, yeah. to drink the milk out of the Shirley Temple cup. And, but the mother just going on, I could just hear this. And it was really like British mentioned comic relief around that scene. And the mother for me, that was, um, and then the mother is just so tender once she really understands what's happening. But, you know, she's such a formidable force or just such a strong force that um, when she's then running the water in the bathtub because she's going to bathe um, Piccola because she has started her period, because her mother is given prone to these um, bursts of um, or these tirades, uh, Claudia says to her sister Frida, she says, you think she's going to drown her? <laughs> <laughs> and we know that, that obviously it's just not going to happen. Otherwise it wouldn't be funny. But, I, I, you know, I think um, probably it's the Magno line or the. Uh, no, I, you make a good case for Claudia and Frieda's mother. I, I think that's a good, I think that's a good call. Um, yeah. Well, but I think it's important because she takes care of her children. I mean, she. Yeah. She does. Uh, she offers. She's the supportive parent that we don't see. Yeah. Uh, I think Madeer is a a very oh, non main yeah, character. I, I like the the power and the mystery around her. Um, I, I like her and and all of the women who tend to Aunt Jimmy and her illness. Um, yeah. Uh, they they. Um, I thought they were pretty neat. Yeah. There are a lot of side characters that are yeah. just, you know. Their, their strength appealed to me. Um, so uh, in terms of picking nits, 
Um, I, I have a few, but I'm going to focus in on a couple. One that is just personal. Where the heck, wh why don't we get more about Sammy, Piccola's brother? Like, I know he runs away, and I know he just leaves. He's sort of a cipher character. I We get nothing from him. Like, I guess I would have liked to see a little bit more of him, or at least we do... We, I think it's pronounced because so many other characters get such a rich backstory and a rich internal life that it's it's very odd that we don't get Piccola's brother. Um, the other one, and I will just, I'll let Mr. Han go to town on this. Um, <laughs> well, okay, one, one other short one. So Charlie and Pauline get their kids taken away after, you know, he burns the house down. They get them back how? Like I know complaining <laughs> about child services is kind of a, like complaining about taxes but seriously who are the people who are like yeah you're good now. um but then finally um soped church uh mr hayne thoughts well tony morrison is brilliant we've established that <clears throat> um there must be a good reason for soped church uh for his presence in the novel um uh i think i'm gonna have to read the book a second time to <laughs> him. Uh, well, maybe maybe it's just because he's so loathsome that yeah. I don't believe that he's necessary. But but I felt that he was just poof appeared out of context, went away. I didn't felt I didn't feel that he was. I didn't feel his strong connection to the other characters or to the rest of the story the way I did with everyone else. Yeah, and even his backstory, which we get, I mean, his lineage, and I mean, it's like a, he's, he's the product of rape, but he's also, you know, just internalized all these false ideas. Um, it's done so academically, and we don't feel it like we do with Charlie or with Pauline. Um, I mean, there, there is this interesting foray into um, how the, the sort of the, depraved white blood that first yeah Collins is um is still at work in him and has and and the the efforts of the 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 people on his island to always marry up by marrying white and yeah and, and refine their features uh maybe what have i don't know contributed to his to his horribly distorted morality well and his, his still he, he was just so like the, the book would have been great without it yeah. well i feel like i feel like he serves he serves certain thematic uh purposes he's a great compliment the negative of madeir he is he sort of his explanation to i mean it's so cruel what he does to piccolo where he basically says feed this to the dog if the dog dies, then God doesn't want you to have blue eyes. Yeah. That ends up sort of echoing the marigolds, right? They say if we plant the marigolds and the marigolds rise, then everything's going to be okay. And it ends up being a way of sort of displacing responsibility and sort of giving a, a, a reasoning behind things. So he has a purpose, but he strikes me as more like he strikes me as more of a piece of the landscape. Like at the end of Dante's Inferno and Satan's more like part of the landscape of hell than being punished there. That's sort of what Soped ends up being. He's he's a part of he's a part of the community, or he's a he's an emblem of the community more than an actual person. Um, his letter to God is one of the most upsetting things I've ever 
red oh. at the end. Yeah. But no, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, unanswerable questions. Um, so uh, I don't know. Maybe just because I enjoy shipping characters. Um, did Junior or Bayboy end up marrying Frida or Claudia? I felt like there may have been some spark there between Bayboy. I could have been wrong, but um, I don't know. What 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 did Frida and Claudia grow up to be? Um, this this was another one. So I'm sorry about child services to nag on them again. So they intervened when Charlie burns down the house, but they don't step in when he impregnates his own daughter? Yeah. Like, I guess, I mean, again, that's part of the system's problem, but that just seemed like a huge oversight. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not sure. Is that when he took off and disappeared? I mean, is it, is, didn't he oh, sort of... Oh, he ran away. Okay. He got out of Dodge, I think. Yeah. You no, know, he ends up dying in a workhouse or a poorhouse or something, but yeah. yeah. So that's a... Uh, okay, that's that's something. Um I, I couldn't help but contrast this with Song of Solomon, where Milkman sort of grows up up in in Michigan, but he comes back down south and sort of rediscovers his roots. Do you think that any of these characters ever got to reconnect, like Pauline in Kentucky, or even Frida and Claudia? Did they ever get to explore some of their roots further south? I don't feel, for some reason, I don't feel like Pauline gets to reconnect, but I'm not sure what I'm basing that on, except mainly just the sort of desolation right. of the house on the edge of the town where she and Piccola live at the end of, of the novel. Yeah. I mean, you can, de you, you all have read more Morrison than I have. It is interesting to contrast this with sort of the, the unearthing and the sort of um, like, I feel like we come to a certain end point here. I feel like in her, in her other novels, it actually comes full. It's not a full tragedy. Like there are tragic yeah. elements, but you mentioned flight in song of Solomon. You know, there's, there's some sort of, right. Not a full exorcism, but some some sort of purging or understanding of of what's going on. Um, but uh, uh, for for half baked internet research, I, I only have a few of these. Um, so I, uh, this is the fifth most challenged book in school libraries in American history. Um, it is often challenged on for some of the things that we've talked about, the depiction of child molestation, incest, um, some of the violence, some of the language used, um, but uh, very, more than any other Morrison book, weirdly enough, it's been challenged. Um, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the the, the rap collective uh, Black Star, but they actually have a song called Thieves in the Night that's based on the bluest eye, uh, most deaf. It's it's a good song. I definitely recommend it. Um, this was the last one that I had there. Um, Morrison was 39 when this book was published. Wow! Which to get a to get a debut novel published at 39. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has a great piece on why we assume genius is equivalent to precocity. Like people who can do things at an incredibly young age are always geniuses. And he actually contrasts this with various artists in different fields who they take a while to bloom. I think the things that we've talked about, Morrison's richness, her depth, her 
Mr. Hayne mentioned, how long does it take to think that up? There's some there's some wisdom in her writing that I don't want to be, you know, stereotypical. I don't think a 20-year-old writes this book. I, I I just I don't think I don't by the way, I don't think like 99.9999% of any population can write this book. It takes an <laughs> exceptional talent. But I don't think anybody at age 20 could write this. I think it and, it, and you know that she has be that she is now in the league she's in. Started mm -hmm. in 1970. I think it was in the green hills of Africa. Hemingway goes on a rant about why it's so impossible to publish more than one good book because, mm -hmm. you know, as soon as you've done the first one, the publisher comes at you and says, We want a book. Now, what the audience is expecting is more yeah. good. We want you to, yeah. we want you to reconsider this. Um, and, I mean, he, he goes into it in much more complexity and detail than that. Um, uh, but I, I think that must have been even harder um, mm -hmm. in in the seventies, or, or maybe I, maybe I'm not considering. No, some, no, some I think I think that's hard today. I mean, yeah. uh, a director, a writer, a musician—you've got to keep on pumping out the same stuff, or you know. And I think her experience as an editor at Random House probably allowed her to speak the language of publishers and be like, "No, no, no, no I can." I can do this, you know, but she had her idea. Um, yeah, I mean, just an incredible run. I don't know, I don't know a better series of books and I don't know a better debut or told better things to come. I mean, she just, she kept on going in, in just really an incredible way. Um, Apex you, um, Mountain. Oh, go ahead, British. Very quickly before we go to the Apex um, Mountain, one thing I kind of discovered in my research is, and one of the things I was really questioning, so like the banning, one of the big things is just like um, the daughter, a father raping her daughter, like very young. But also I think the president of Ohio or like some president of a school in Ohio said that this book has socialist communist undertones, which really confused me for some reason. Because I, I noticed it's like the weirdest reason to ban this book because I didn't really notice any of that class. Um, well, conflict. yeah, I wouldn't. I, I I can't say I see that myself. Although, you know, I, I guess at a certain time period, if you wanted to see Marxist overtones, you could find it in everything. That's the beauty of Marx, right? Um, well, she's suggesting that the uh, uh, the the establishment's image of its own society is damaging mm. to the common people. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Although I, I feel like a capitalist could equally say that and say, well, let's make some money by fixing it. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if the um, person elaborated on that point. It was on Wikipedia, so it just like showed the quote <laughs> in the uh, Wikipedia. Well, we can go uh, later and edit that, change that to suit us, can't we? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, really fast here, I only had a couple uh, candidates for Apex Mountain. I do not think this is Toni Morrison's Apex. Um, as as awesome as it is, I think she reaches higher heights. Um, Lorraine, Ohio. I, I I don't know if you've ever been to Lorraine. I've driven through it. 
this book is about as good as it's getting for <laughs> no, I, I kid. My wife is from Ohio. I, I routinely bash Ohio for fun. Um, uh, Shirley Temple, Apex Mountain for, or I should say Apex Mountain for slamming Shirley Temple. <laughs> I can't think of a better takedown. Um, uh, Apex Mountain for fake healers. I, I do think why the why I live at the PO is, is a is a great critique on Shirley of Shirley. Oh, Tiffany. that's true. Um, the little, the little child, uh, fatherless child who comes back home and her name is Shirley T. Just by coincidence, <laughs> she can tap that. <laughs> and she gets picked by the sailor man. That's right. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, okay. Yeah. I as amazing as this is, like I. I feel like it's not quite the apex for any of these, you know, like it's, but, I, but I'm willing to be told different. Well, I feel that it, though it, maybe it's reaching the apex for works that really examine um, the um, destruction of those who do not fit into the, um, majority opinion of um, beauty and and what that absolutely how that absolutely destroys um, in, in this case children but in this uh, female children and, and and Morrison said she wanted to choose them as delicate members of the culture who are children and the most vulnerable who are female. And she was looking at it too through the lens of um, racial um, standards, you know, of course, because the, the beauty is the beauty of the um, ideal white girl. And right. um, the, that that's held up as the ideal of beauty. I, I, I have to say maybe if we're looking for, and you know, it's not the apex for Morrison novels, but wow. For, mm -hmm. for, hey, how about Apex for debut novels there? You know, yeah. And, yeah. That, but also for novels that really examine how um, identity cannot be formed in, in it, oh, just how there's really not even the opportunity to form a self. And for such lyrical treatment of such a difficult topic. Right. right. That's, you know, that's borne out a little bit when, when Morrison passed away last year. This, obviously, Beloved got mentioned because that's that earned her the Pulitzer and really cemented her case for the Nobel. But the bluest eye was talked about a lot. And, and that concept of inhabiting a body that isn't yours. Right. You know, that, 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 that concept and dynamic was still very much alive. So I think that's fair that... She 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 obviously dealt with it indirectly in other places as well, but her sort of sustained focus on it in this is kind of yeah the apex of that sort of thing. I would I would say that there are other debut novels that are powerful. What sets hers apart is it's it's sort of like okay, so the very first song in the very first Beatles album is I saw her standing there. If that was the only song they ever did, that would have been a pretty that's a pretty good first song. There are other first songs that people do that you might put above it, but the fact that it foretells the greatness that comes after is adds to its legend. And I'd say the same here. 
pound for pound, there might be other debut novels that stack up with it. But when you put that this isn't even her top, like she's gonna go so much higher, it's really it's really hard to think of someone else who goes in that same follows that same arc, which I think leads us appropriately enough. This is probably the easiest one that we're gonna find. Who won this book? Nobody in this book wins. And so really the only candidate is Toni Morrison. Morrison. Well, <laughs> if you come from a deer and say she wins the book, I don't know. I'm not. No, I did. I, but I do want to make something of a case for Pauline. Oh. Um, okay. I, I mean, I found her. Uh, when when I saw the uh, when I read the scene where Aunt Jimmy's dying and heard the description of the how these women had beaten their children with one hand and stolen for them with the other, mm -hmm. I just thought this is Pauline. I mean, she's tough, but she's she is compassionate. Um, she. Yeah, I, the only thing that I would say is that scene where she's at the white people's house. Yeah and the little kid is calling her Polly. Like, they can't even get her name right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she's, but she. I'm not gonna she's say she's- also the one who is running that house and knows it. That's um, true. And that's um, true. She, is in a, she is in a place where, I mean, this is her career. It's not her life, but she's she is someone who has this urge to create order and she creates it there where she is able to create it because Charlie's not there until he is. Um, I, uh, and, uh, I, 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 that's a good case for saying she's not that, a main character to me. I, I, she at least wins. She is not totally defeated in the way others are. I, I just have to give it to Morrison because the thing that stood out from the beginning. So, to, to go to your point, how do we know? I wouldn't give it to her over Toni Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, you make a fair point that, you know, all is not lost. But again, the, the, way, the way we know that is because Pauline is drawn so beautifully and captured from so many angles. I love that little detail. Even her children call her Mrs. Breedlove. Like she's yeah. always Mrs. Breedlove. That little detail always, always stands out to me. Um, well, this has been a very different sort of book and a discussion than we had of the Hunger Games, but I think it does it does illustrate that um, I mean literature is very is varied, and when great works of art, when great artists take on these things, they're both I think they are both accessible, but I also think that they are so rich. I mean, this is something that. I was I was contemplating renaming this thing because I don't necessarily want to return to this world again and again and read about the depravity that poor Picola has to go through. But the fact that you can revisit it and find the depth and the nuance and the interlocking things, even just talking with you all makes me want to reread some of those passages. Um, so I think this definitely fits in there. Um, any last any last comments on Toni Morrison's amazing novel? Well, I'm just wondering if we, the friend who lent me the book also gave it to me with these. <laughs> marigold. <laughs> marigold seeds. And she said, you will understand why. <laughs> like like well, maybe she's my dear, but um, <laughs> uh, um, I'm wondering 
you know, finally, if we were to plant these, would, I don't know, in the lines of the final paragraph, would our, would the earth of our land support? Well, that's Absolutely. I, I, feel, I feel like a lot of people have been praying and hoping and moving for a change that will support Marigolds. And I yeah. think we can join in, in praying for that same thing. So thank you all for coming out. Thank you, British, for just when you thought you were out, we pulled you back in, not unlike, uh, not unlike Michael Corleone. So uh, thank you all and uh, hope you stay safe and uh, be well. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to our second full episode, uh, our examination or discussion, conversation about Toni Morrison's uh, just amazing novel, The Bluest Eye. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. More than that, we hope this inspires you to read the novel yourself and encourages you to join that, the critical conversation around it. We in no way exhausted the topics, the style, the artistry, the um, structure of this novel. There's so many things to work through and, and uh, we hope that you will add to that. Along those lines, if you have questions or comments, please feel free to contact me. My email address is ecircy, that's E-S-I-R-C-Y at heathwood.org. Um, I may not know the answer, but I'm happy to pass those questions and comments along to my colleagues. They will probably be able to help you out. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoyed it.